Welcome to episode 14 of Chin Music. It's a podcast that's presented by Fancrafts in lovely and hot DeKalb, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein and our co-host chair. Uh, we've, we're going to buy a second one just so we can have a permanent New York residence. Uh, he is the... Are you national or senior writer? I, I, what are you? I am a national senior writer. National senior writer for The Athletic, former uh, Yankees and Mets beat writer for the Star Ledger, former Royals beat writer for the Kansas City Star, mm-hmm. and former Dodgers beat writer for the LA Times. He's the one and only Andy McCullough. Andy, how are you? KG, man. How's it going? It's going lovely. That's hot. great. It's it, hot. It's a nice it? day. It's Yeah, it's like in the 80s here. Oh, no. I guess that's good, right? That's Yeah, it's great. We're going to grill outside. We're going to have a good time. Perfect. I can't complain. Um we're going to do a podcast, and that means we're going to talk about baseball for a while. Uh, we'll cover all the, the the news that uh, all the news that we want to talk about. <laughs> and then we'll, uh, our special guest will be Herb Lawrence, who uh, might not have a national footprint, but I love the guy. Uh, he is uh, a longtime radio fixture here uh, in in the Chicago Land Metro area, uh, and he also hosts the Locked On Sox podcast, which is a daily White Sox podcast. He's going to talk to us about. Uh, all things Tony Larusa and the White Sox, and we've already recorded this interview. Uh, we're always transparent with you, uh, and and Herb let it fly, and I'm glad he, he did. Was, he was great. He was great. Yeah. yeah. Let us great. know how he felt, uh, and then we will uh, talk about our musical guest, the amazing Decibels, French punk rock, produced by Steve Albini. Uh, we'll go through uh, your emails, and we got a lot of good ones. Uh, we'll talk about a moment of culture, and then we'll be gone. Uh, you ready to talk about baseball? Yes, I would just like to say to uh, to to pump up uh, Herb's interview. Um, I have a very my stance on the Larusa thing is that it's hilarious, um, <laughs> and uh, I think Herb actually did a good job of uh, of explaining uh, the not funny things about it, and I think that's yeah. important. Yeah, for sure. And it's it, it's it's been it's been strange, and obviously it's been a big story in Chicago. And, and like we talked about this third, but it's hard to at times to kind of combine the fact that. Tony Russo is being an idiot, and this team has the best record in the American League. Um, so last night, Corey Kluber threw a no hitter. Uh, the night before, Spencer Turnbull threw a no hitter. Uh, I think it's six now. Is it six? I don't know. Uh, and it depends on how you feel about Bumgarner. I just I don't care. I, I hate this. <laughs> I just don't care. I don't care. If 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 you have any sort of emotional feeling about that, I I think you need therapy. I don't care. Um, but anyway, like well, obviously we're on a pace for. And I I you know Joe Sheehan said a couple of weeks ago that you know no hitters are kind of random events, and and that stuck with me. And I think it's true. Nonetheless, the 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 dice have come up quite a bit this year. You know, obviously. Um, we all know offense is is way down and, and hitting is not happening. And the, the league OPS right now is just a, a, a tick over 700. 
Um, I counted this morning, and I think there are six teams who have a, a composite on base percentage below 300. Ugh. So we have a, a we, we're in an environment that is conducive to no hitters. I still think it's weird that these are happening. Not that they're happening, but who's who they're happening for. Like Wade Miley, Spencer Turnbull, and guys like that, and and even the Kluber one, like the Kluber one was nine strikeouts. You'd expect it to be like one of those games where you know Scherzer strikes out fourteen or Degrom strikes out sixteen, and they only need like ten to twelve fielding outs, and and that's not what we're getting this time, and and so that's weird. But it's also kind of random, and it, I feel bad now because like. Honestly, like I, you know, I got the alert on my phone just like anyone else in baseball. And it was like, oh, Corey Kluber's throwing no hitter. Oh, he got it. Okay, back to watching our television show. Like it was just, you know, <laughs> yeah, who cares? It, you know, it's like, and and in a weird way, are you kind of sick of him? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's Clayton Kershaw said this last night. Like, it's obviously bad for the sport if there's a no hitter every night. I mean, like, and it's who not wants, special. Yeah, yeah. Who wants to watch this shit? Like, who wants to watch, you know, like, hitters just kind of go up there and, and flail because, you know, the pitchers are so far ahead right now. And there's a lot of potential reasons for that. I mean, I think the uh, the proliferation of, of sticky stuff is something that, you know, a lot of people around the game are, are, are harping on. Um, I think also, though, just, like, pitchers have a technological advantage in terms of, you know, like shaping pitches and Huge episode, yeah. and you know, cause like pitching is a, is a, is a, an aggression and hitting is reactive. And so, um, you know, there's not as much that the hitters can do with all the nerd technology. Um, uh, whereas the pitchers are very clearly far ahead. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think like it's, uh, you know, it's trite to, uh, you know, complain about the quality of the sport, but like it's terrible. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's terrible. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, I right now I'm just. I mean, again, this is not two weeks in. This is a quarter of the season in. This is 44 games. The Seattle Mariners, as a team, are hitting 198, 279, 360 for a 639 OPS. Oh man, that's a team. That's a whole team. You know, and there are teams that are hitting. The Astros are hitting. We all knew that they'd hit. Um, you know, the White Sox are hitting, Boston's hitting, which is kind of a surprise. But for the most part, like, we're in kind of a weird spot where, you know, obviously Major League Baseball is doing a lot uh, of experiments and and thinking about ways to, to quote-unquote, fix this. Um, do, do, do any of those light you up? Do any of those make you step back and go, oh, this might be a good idea? Um, I mean, I think if they could do something about sticky stuff that would probably help but i don't i i don't think there's an easy solution because you know you can get uh you can build a prototype baseball you know that has some tack on it right so that guys you know uh don't have to use rosin or whatever but like how do you um litigate against you know sunscreen how do you litigate against you right know, they're the still going to add to it yeah they're still so like i i don't i <laughs> that's one that's kind of difficult to to sort out i mean so yeah I, I i there's been talk about like you know banning the shift which like i don't uh i think like philosophically i disagree with that i tend to 
you know, want um, like fewer rules rather than more, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, I I would say that like my baseball politics are almost the uh, exact opposite of my actual (laughs) politics. Like I'm I'm like very much like a baseball reactionary. Um, So I don't want them to ban the shift per se, but then I watch a game and like the fielders are always just right fucking there wherever the ball gets in. It's really boring. (laughs) So I don't know. (laughs) I don't, you know, it's, uh, it's really causing me to uh, evaluate some of my positions i guess um so you know the pitchers beyond the 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 having the technology advantage over the hitters right now they're also just all just letting it fly like we've 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 lived in a world where four inning starts don't shock us anymore um and it's just hey, hey can you get me 12 outs just get on the mound and let it let it rip um and the stuff is so much better than it was 10 years ago. Uh, and I don't, I, it feels to me like we're going, I don't see how this train is like, this is a train. It's not a car. This is a train. I don't know how you stop the train. Um, and I really, I don't, I, I, I don't like any of the rules either, but I really think like in five years, like a league wide rate of 13 or 14 strikeouts per nine is going to be the norm. Yeah, they're going to be like, man, that guy Garrett Cole from several years ago, he stunk. He only struck out 12 per nine. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're right. Like, guys are are told to, you know, basically just go air it out. Um, they're able to do that because they know they're not going to be expected to go deep into games. Um, they have the, the ability to, like, shape pitches through the stuff they're doing in the offseason, through, you know, stuff with plyo balls, like sometimes even in-game, I mean, just all that sort of stuff. And then if you have a good grip on the baseball and you know that you're able to, you know, throw it as hard as you can and it's not just going to go soaring into the backstop, like that yeah. makes it, you know, like you watch some guys start and it's like very clear that they don't exactly know where the baseball is going to go, but they know it's kind of going to be in the general vicinity of the catcher. And, right, uh, and that, the, the, just the quality of the stuff itself, that's, yeah. that's, that's enough. Right, so it's just like, yeah, I don't know, it's kind of going to be near the plate and it's going to be moving, like, good luck. Yeah, and, and, and I, I, scouts have adjusted that as well. Like, the, you know, you go, what's his command like? And like, well, this stuff's crazy. If he he, just, <laughs> he, fill, he fills the box and that's enough, right? right? As right, long as he can right. fill the box, you're fine. Right. Um, the other, you know, the bigger story maybe in some ways was, was Mike Trout's hurt. Mike Trout's going to miss, uh, they said six to eight weeks. Um, Mike Trout's not the only player hurt. Everybody's hurt. And, you know, I... I Talked to a, a, a couple people before the season. They're all saying, well, we're really worried about injuries this year because of the weirdness that was 2020 and guys kind of got out of their out of their routine. And I was like, yeah, it should be more. And I remember, you know, I asked one guy, the GM, and, and I said, hey, are you really worried about injuries this year? And he just kind of paused. This was in spring training. And mm-hmm. he just kind of paused and he sighed and, it, and he went, I'm fucking terrified. And mm-hmm. it's all kind of coming. He was right. And like the injuries are up at a at a ridiculous rate, and a lot of them are those kind of you know soft tissue injuries, mm-hmm. hamstrings and quads, and then you know we saw uh, Mike Stanton or John Carlos Stanton hit the, the deal with the quad thing. I still call him Mike. And um, yeah, that was that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I remember <laughs> when he was coming up with the Marlins. He was sure. Like, uh, this is this is how my world works. And but you know, this is also bad for baseball in the sense that, you know, superstars miss too much time and you go to see superstars or you turn on your TV to see superstars. You know, I don't, you, you know, you're going to tune in for the Angels game yesterday because Shohei Otani's starting, 
But, you know, all of a sudden the Angels game becomes a little less appealing to you on your television because Mike Trout's not playing. Um, right. You know, I I don't – it's a weird question because it's medical stuff. It's real, like I don't know, like, is there anything you can do about this? And my answer is I don't know. And, and we already have teams kind of doing NBA-style load management, and it, right. it doesn't seem to be accomplishing anything. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a combination of um, I think teams are being a little bit quicker with the trigger finger to, to put guys on the IL. Right yeah, now. I think they're happy um, to say, fine, take a yeah, rest. Just, you know, because I think everyone sort of understood, like, I don't exactly know how the heck we're going to get through this season. So might as well be, you know, careful about that. I think that is pretty common. But like then there's also, you know, like serious injuries, kind of like what, what Trout had or, um, you know, there's been some like Corey Seager had one, but that was kind of, you know, freakish. It was a little freakish, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a real problem. I mean, it's I think the tale from 2020 in terms of, you know, not just the finances of the sport, but just the general overall health of the sport, you know, how fans take in games, you know, what the product looks like. I think the tale from last year is going to, you know, be pretty lengthy and, you know, mm-hmm. you're seeing part of it. Like, uh, you know, teams like I, I had similar conversations with, um, you know, with executives this off season about just like, how are you going to get pitchers through this year? Like, we, well, you know, what are you like, what are you going to do? And they were all just basically like, ah, yeah yeah we'll see like yeah if if anyone had a secret sauce like they weren't saying it into my tape recorder but um i also don't think there is one i think you know guys were just sort of honest about like we've never done this before so we'll see how it goes and you're kind of seeing it i think so like it's gonna look like this i think you're gonna see players getting il'd quicker for more minor things and then there's also that combined with you know an uptick in you know, actual injuries, I think it's going to be pretty severe. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think one thing you're going to see some teams do, and there are challenges to doing this is, is it's easy to do in the minors, do it all the time, but it's phantom DL stints where, right. um, you know, this guy's going every day. We want to make sure he's fresh and healthy in October. It's mid season. It's, it's mid July or so. Um, we're going to put him on the DL with something itis, um, which is a medical term for that hurts and we don't know why. <laughs> and but if they're going to make it up, but the problem is, is like it's easy to do that theoretically. It's easier for you and I to talk about doing that. It's easy to anyway. say that they're, they're going to do that, and I think teams definitely want to do that. However, you know, if you are a player who is um, getting ready to be a free agent, or you're a player who even who's getting ready to enter an arbitration year, where counting numbers really, really count. Like counting mm-hmm. stats count a ton in arbitration. You know, for all the wrong reasons, but like you're saying, okay, so you're going to. I'm going to miss three starts now, mm-hmm. right? And I need I need to accumulate numbers to make more money. Like I don't right. want to do that, and I, you know you can't place a player on the you, technically rule wise. You can't place a player on the disabled list if he's not hurt, right? Um, which is why you're going to see these, you know, oh, it's tendonitis, you know, or whatever, because they're going to make sure. something up. But um, there, there's it's going to be easier to do for a guy who's not do to make money than a guy who is worried about what his salary is next year, either through arbitration or free agency. For sure. And also like I was covering, I was covering the Dodgers when they, when they pioneered this in like 2016 and 2017 and really, you know, they were on the cutting edge of uh, guys having, uh, you know, glute strains and stuff. general soreness yeah they once put uh, they sent ross stripling to uh to like uh camelback ranch for three months one time with lower body fatigue which uh you know he he bravely came back from <laughs> um 
But, like, you know, if you're the Dodgers, right, and you come into the season with Kershaw, Bauer, Bueller, Urias, May, Price, and Gonsolin, you're like, yeah, we're going to phantom DL guys as the season goes along. And then all of a sudden, Price gets hurt, May's out for the year, Gonsolin's still hurt, and mm-hmm. you don't have that luxury anymore. So it's like it's a cavalcade of like strategic ways to get through this season kind of uh, butting up against the reality of it. And it's made for some, you know, not pretty times. And, you know, you talked about the Dodgers and obviously the Dodgers have had um, massive injury problems. One of the the, the bigger injury hit teams in in baseball, uh, they're, I think, below their expectations. They're in third place Mm -hmm. this morning. Yeah, Um, yeah. But they're still 25 and 18. They're a good team. and they're, they're, I suspect they'll be okay. I suspect they'll be okay. But, um, you know, all of a sudden their depth was challenged. And then this week they signed Albert Pujols. Um, <laughs> and it was yeah. just like, I, you know. <laughs> they did do that. that I, I thought Albert would get another gig. I didn't think it was over for him. And, and I thought he'd take a bench role somewhere. It kind of, I would have bet a lot of money it would be an American League team. Mm-hmm. Um because he doesn't play first baseball anymore, and all of a sudden the Dodgers signed him. Were you surprised by that? I was. Um, I was. It was. Uh, it was not what I expected, but I think that gives you a pretty good window into um, you know where they were at depth wise and sort of the you know what like would if you are the Dodgers, would you rather give you know seventh or eighth inning? pinch hitting appearances to you know sheldon noisy or albert pools it's like right. oh yeah i mean you know, how old's albert whatever yeah sure send him along it's albert pools he you know he's fine um and i think so it, it was just as simple as that it just it sounds a lot stranger you know um because it's albert pools you know but like would you rather have him or dj peters up in a big spot would you rather have him or luke Rayleigh? you know and it's kind of the same with you know sutsugo like there's a general level of competence uh, in those guys um that is ahead of kind of where the dodgers are depth wise it's just a um it's just a it's different than what we're used to from the Dodgers because normally when they call someone up it's Max Muncie and now all of a sudden it's just like a normal guy you bring up from the minors <laughs> a normal you know, guy you know so it's yeah but I, it was it was surprising i mean it's yeah you know they're they're going for it man they're all in they signed Albert Pujols i think one of the more interesting parts of it was the press conference in the sense that you know the story was that Albert said he wanted to play every day. The Angels said, you're not going to play every day. And he said, well, then let me go. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to the Dodgers and says, yeah, I understand. I'm a bench player. And <laughs> yep. maybe he learned in the in the week of free agency I think how I, the I, sport I, viewed him. Yeah, Right. Well, I, I think that's what happened. Like, I think it was some combination of for two weeks he realized, oh, shit, if I get any job, it's going to be – no one's offering me an everyday job. So if I want to take a job, it's going to be a bench job. And then I do think part of it was like, yeah, maybe I can finish off with a ring as a Dodger. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna, if they're gonna put you in a part-time role, which, like, to be clear, is like the role that Albert Pujols should have at this point in his career, uh, would you rather do that for a team going nowhere, you know, or for a team that has a chance to play in the World Series? Like, right. It's pretty obvious. Now, like, did he know that the Dodgers were gonna want him? Probably not, because like, you know, it, it took a variety of things going wrong for the Dodgers to have that spot open. But you know, I think if he looked at it as, you know, I can, you know, like. Which would you like? I it, I would be very curious to you know hook everyone in that situation up to you know sodium penthol and find out what exactly <laughs> happened because like there's a variety of different versions of this story you know so I'd I'd be curious to know like what actually was going on there. Um, it was 
it was uh, unceremonious the way Pujols was let go. It wasn't surprising because he's not particularly like good at this point. Right. It still, it still was a bit unceremonious. Um, you know, it's like I said, we we kind of hit the quarter mark. We hit the quarter pole over the last week for most teams um, that haven't had too many pandemic problems like the Mets. Um, but you know, everyone's at forty something games. And you look at the standings and all of a sudden, is the American League East suddenly the most fun division? You know, the Yankees are in fourth place and a game and a half out. Um, and you have the, the Red Sox, Rays, Blue Jays, Yankees, all uh, five or more games over 500, all within two games of each other. Like, is this going to last? I would, you know, if someone said put 20 bucks down, I'd still put the 20 bucks on the Yankees. But is this gonna is this going to remain a fun division the entire year? I think so. I mean, I think it's gonna be competitive. Like, and in terms of like players who individually are interesting to watch, all four of those teams have have a lot of those guys. So there's appeal there. But I think like you know the the Rays, while they are not the most thrilling team, uh, you know aesthetically, are still very good. I, I think Boston is is a really interesting club. Um, the Yankees are pretty boring aesthetically as well, but they're very good. And, you know, Toronto's got a lot of young, interesting players. So it's, you know, it's a good mix. I mean, it's, it's kind of what you want out of that division where you've got the two, like, financial powerhouses, although only one of them spends that way. Uh, and then the Blue Jays, who very much would, you know, like to, you know, crop up into that uh, group. And then the Rays, who kind of do their thing and are always, you know, pretty good. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, in terms of like division races I'm interested in, like it, you know, I think the, the NL West uh, is going to be pretty compelling because I think the Giants are for real. Um, but other than that, you know, it's really just the AL East. You're buying the Giants? I'm buying them as like legitimately annoying for the other two teams who are better than them. If that makes sense, it makes like, perfect sense. Yeah, I think they are well run. They, you know, Farhan Zaidi has done a very good job filling out that roster. And the yes. thing about the Giants, right, is that if you said like, yeah, man, the Giants are they're powered on offense by like a thirty-four year old catcher who didn't even play last year, and you'd be like, what? Where did Farhan find that guy? And you'd be like, no, no, it's Buster Posey. Right. It's like, oh. Well, he's like a Hall of Famer, right? Well, maybe, you know. So, like, it's, it's you know, if they're getting, you know, for lack of a better term, like dead cat bounce seasons from Posey, Belt, and Crawford, those cats are probably going to soar higher than most because those are actually, like, good players who have a really good track record. You know, combine that with the fact that they can they can actually pitch and out of the starting rotation. I don't think they're going to win the division, but, like, I think they're going to be, you know, as I said, very annoying for the Padres and the Dodgers who are both more talented than them. I just wonder how they're going to handle this because I, I agree with you. Like they, they, they're not as good as the Dodgers, the Padres, and and I, I wonder if like, at what point in July do they say, or do they say, yeah, we're not going to catch those guys. Like we're having a really fun time, but we're not going to catch those guys. And um, and Kevin Gaussman's going to be a free agent. And, yeah, well, what do you what are you, you going to get for Kevin Gaussman? A truckload. What? In trade. He's one of the best pitchers. He's what he's yeah, a, a, a starting pitcher of that quality, like as a rental, is going to be one. Look, that, you know, I know Max Scherzer been, does. If Max Scherzer does what it, the market for the last. <laughs> I know you you were off the market for several years. I don't know what projects you were working on, but since 2012, things are very different. Like 
<laughs> you don't get prospects when they trade for people. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm well, not saying they're going to get no, someone's curious, number like, one dude, but they're going to. I think you'd get a real piece for Kevin Gossman. I guess the the reason to trade Gossman is they can't make him another qualifying offer. Right. right, and and you know yeah. if, if if Max Scherzer does not hit the market, you have the number one starting pitching target for competing teams. Yeah, uh, but what if you're what if you have a real shot at making the second wild card? You know, and you have a you know you're going to spend a lot of money potentially this winter. Um, you know, I I, I don't know. I, you I know, just they, think it's tough for him, like because like, like you said, they're they're in a tough division and they have tons of impending free agents. They do. Uh, they do. Um, yeah, it's an interesting spot. It's an interesting spot. I, I would be curious to know how much you will actually get for Gossman because, you know, as we've seen uh, last year, I guess, I don't even know who got traded last year. I, I didn't watch West Baseball. But, um, <laughs> you know, in previous years, right, like the, the, the two-month rentals, they don't get what they used to get. Um, no, and, but you, they can get a real dude, though. You can, get, you can get something you like that you really think is part of your future as opposed to just a body. I guess. I mean, maybe. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. We'll see. I But I think they're, like, I think they're an 85 to 88 win team. And I think that might be enough to contend for the, the second wild card. To get you into the coin flip game. Yeah. Which, you know, is, has worked for that franchise before. With, yeah. like, these players yeah, before. Yeah, you're amazingly. right. Yeah, it's, it's fun to kind of measure that. It's, it's going to be a tough balance for them as far as... Yeah balancing the the future and the now um and yeah. i think it's definitely the probably the most interesting team in baseball in that regard right um but i back to the east like the red sox feel kind of for real they've built the offense is hitting first of all that's the key i mean they're one of the best offenses in the american league but i think the real key here has been the rotation where they have you know we knew nady of pretty good um gary richard started off horrible but it's kind of figured some stuff out and, and always had good data always had you know the kind of team that the kind of guy would, would appeal to a data-driven team mm-hmm. they always had really good data spins the shit out of it uh we do eduardo rodriguez was solid uh martin perez is a perfectly cromulent back-end starter mm-hmm. um and then nick pavetta who um i'll just give it up like when i was with the astros tried to acquire for years mm-hmm. uh time and time again um just because another guy with uh not good pitch data, great pitch data. Like it's, mm. it's 40 command of it. And he's not like a pitchability guy. He's, there's no precision to it. He's another guy who's just kind of filling a box with weapons, but they're huge weapons. This is like on just terms of pitch data, velocity, movement, spin, all that kind of stuff. Um, this guy like lines up with ace level guys. Um, you know, you make this point And then I, I realize uh, as we think about Kevin Gaussman, that, um, that uh, Pavetta was traded last year for Brandon Workman, so um, right. probably maybe they could get something for Grossman. Hey, yeah, see, <laughs> telling you. Um, have there been any like stories this year that you feel are are kind of underreported or under talked about? Uh, Shohei Otani's pitching uh, has been underreported that it's not good. No, I don't feel like doing that. Um, I don't know. I I, I think uh, maybe this is just a a, like a self-selecting group of people that I talk to at this point. But like everyone I talk to is is freaking out about sticky stuff. And I just I don't like it it could be, you know, 100 percent prevalent, 80 percent prevalent. You know, I I don't really know because we're not in the room anymore and you can't really talk to people. So it's kind of unclear. But um, 
yeah, I mean, people seem pretty concerned about how that's affecting the offensive environment. Yeah, I don't it's tough, and you can you see it like just watch a game, and you can watch players go to their hat, or the new thing that you see a lot of guys are sticking their thumb in their belt. Uh-huh. Um, and when you see that, that's what they're doing. Um, it's everywhere, and and we talked about it. And I know, and pitchers have never been satisfied with it. Baseball is trying to create a pre-tacked ball. Um, you know, here's the ball, and it's it's tacked for you, so you can get the a grip that you want on it that's not overly conducive to you. Um, but if it's not overly conducive to you, and nobody's enforcing any sort of substance, guys are still going to use something, right? Right, and, and that's the that's the thing that makes it like impossible to legislate, right? All of a sudden, you're going to get in a situation where if you want to legislate this, you're going to have fifteen guys at night getting kicked out for a week and a half. <laughs> That'd be kind of fun, actually. It would be kind of fun. It would be, funny, be kind of funny, but you'd have to. That's the only way. If you're going to actually legislate this, you're going to actually you're yeah. going to have to legislate it. And, um, you know, if I had to set an over under on guys using something, I would set on somewhere between two thirds and three quarters. How would baseball Twitter react if, in the World Series, Tony Larusa told the umpires to check Trevor Bauer? Who would baseball Twitter side with? <laughs> I think they would side at the end of the day with Bauer. Okay. Um, two of the really more popular people. In case you're wondering what I'm rooting for, that would be very fun to me. That would be, yeah, that would, that would, that would be an amusing outcome. That would be an amusing outcome. I think uh, it's fun when people have to you know make choices here. <laughs> Who you got there? Oh, I don't care. I, I'm, I'm rooting for the story. Whatever is the best story is what I'm rooting for. Is that kind of how you operate? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, um, yeah, I. Uh, it's weird because you know, like all I, I've only more or less only written about baseball for the past twelve years, I guess, and that's really just like a fluke of um, a fluke of like you know the Star Ledger needing someone to cover the Mets back in twenty ten, and so I got put on the beat when I wasn't ready, and you know, but I been kind of just doing this ever since and so like people you know it's not like i it's not that i dislike baseball but i wouldn't say it's like my favorite thing in the world what is your favorite thing in the world andy uh not watching baseball (laughs) no (laughs) you know like i like reading books that's probably my you know my favorite thing you know reading books or you know my cat are my favorite things uh and uh and so but like I like I like it, you know, I like the sport. But like people ask, you know, like, are you concerned about the future of the sport? And I'm like, I don't give a shit at all. Like, you know, I don't like I don't know. That's that's for Rob Manford to solve. Like, I'm just a journalist. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I root for you know, I root for me. I root for whatever's the best outcome for me. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you learn that when you're a beat writer, you know, like you root for you you know, you root for quick games on getaway day and you root for you know, like blowouts when you have a tight deadline and stuff like that. And then you root for good games in the postseason when people are actually reading. So it's, uh, you know, you, I'm rooting for me because no one else is. You know what I mean? <laughs> We're all rooting for you, Andy. Thank you. Thank it, you. On the I inside. appreciate that. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to, to Herb Lawrence who will uh, let us know his true feelings about the Chicago White Sox and Toy La Russa. <laughs> And we'll come back and read your emails, talk about our musical guest, have a moment of culture, those kind of things. So stick around. 
Welcome back to the podcast. It's special guest time. Our guest is is as a legend in Chicago radio. He has been a producer at The Score, which is the the, the bigger and better of the two Chicago sports talkers in Chicago for uh, over two decades now. Uh, he produces the Lawrence Holmes shows. He also is the executive producer of Chicago Cubs baseball. But the reason he's here is because he hosts the Locked On Sox podcast, which is a daily podcast about things going on in White Sox world with Chris Tannehill. And so joining us from his luxurious accommodation in Chicago, Illinois, it's Herb Lawrence. Herb, how are you, man? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on today. It's an honor. It's not, That's way too big a word for this show. <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely it's, an honor. I mean, I mean, I'm going with Kevin Goldstein, who I used to book back in the day. That guy leaves for a great job and then comes back and says, hey, you want to be on my show? I was like, yeah. We were we reversed roles. I called you this time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, obviously, you host. You're a Chicagoan. You host a White Sox podcast. You're a White Sox fan. Um, how do you react to what has been a nonstop soap opera since the hiring of Tony Larusa? I just think that with the best record in the American League, the players are. They've gone through a lot since you know 2016 when the rebuild started. And to get to this point, the precipice of where you've gotten to where you want to go and to have a person that's actively trying to derail the chemistry in the clubhouse, it's just very disappointing. And knowing that that guy's not going anywhere in a regular situation, GMs would have already fired a guy that lost the clubhouse. But Do you, do you think he's lost the clubhouse? Oh, yes. I think for the most part, he's lost the clubhouse. People respect him as a Hall of Fame manager or Hall of Fame baseball person. But for the most part, if you're throwing your lieutenants, Lance Lynn, Yermin Mercedes, and others under the bus and saying that I have the office, they have the lockers, it's not that game anymore. It's not the 80s. I'm sorry. That was... That's like my favorite quote of the year. That's so funny. Um, I mean, this does just this this does seem to be a person operating with zero fear of losing his job. It seems like he he is very much aware of who's who owns the team and uh, and his relationship with that person. It seems to be uh, pretty clear what's going on here. And Andy and Kevin, I don't know if you've seen the movie Double Jeopardy with uh, Ashley Judd. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> It's literally how he's acting because he got <laughs> fired by Jerry Reinsdorf and Hulk Harrelson in 86. And he knows that the last thing that Jerry Reinsdorf wants to do again is to fire him. So he's like, I'm with I'm with house money. I'm a Hall of Famer. This guy is feeling sorry. He has a regret for firing me the last time. I can do whatever I want. And I got those uh, bona fides up there, those championships. So you know what? I'm going to do me. And the players are like, you can do you, but we ain't going to listen to that. <laughs> no. Let's, let's talk specifically. There's, I mean, certainly we have 75 incidents we could talk about already. But I want to talk about what happened this week with Yerman Mercedes. And, you know, blowout game, twins. We all know what happened. The position player comes in, 3-0. I'll call it a breaking ball because it's just fun to say that. <laughs> and and Yerman demolishes it because that's what he does against 47-mile-an-hour breaking balls. Um you know, when Tony first made the first kind of hullabaloo about it, my first reaction was like, I think he just said this wrong. I don't think he really feels this way. I think he's just mad that that Yerman missed a sign. And if he's mad that Yerman missed a sign, I get it. 
at the same time, if you actually watch that at bat, and, and Harold Reynolds pointed this out and made a really good point, and we don't get to say Harold Reynolds made a good point a lot, so let's celebrate <laughs> that. Like, I, like Harold's made a point that like, if you watch the at bat, like it was so fast, like he'd get the ball and he'd throw it again. Like, like there was no time to get a sign, and but then he kind of doubled down and said, no, he was pissed about the three zero, you know, the swing and the home run, and 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 kind of, you know, the stupid unwritten rules thing. And it got to, and now, and now, and you know, he, he's going to get asked questions about this. Chicago media is not afraid of him. They're going to ask him tough questions and he's kind of doubles and triples down. And it, it kind of went from, <clears throat> excuse me. It kind of went from like, oh, I get where Tony's coming from to kind of a what the fuck moment. And, <laughs> and we've, we've had a million of these. And at the same time, like we keep hearing about this over and over and over again. But the Chicago White Sox have the best record in the American League, the best run differential in baseball. Um, isn't a manager's job simply to do that? And should we kind of be ignoring these small things? Or are you worried that there's there's kind of ramifications coming and they just haven't arrived yet in the standings? I would be worried if this team was more of a fractured team where, you know, in clubhouses sometimes the uh, Latino players stay in one faction, the whites and the blacks stay in the other factions. Mm -hmm. And so they're separated. And so there might be some, man, I agree with Tony. Uh, I don't agree. And then there's a, a clubhouse that's divided. No, these guys are together. And I'm a guy that thinks that managers don't matter that much in wins and losses. Like the strategy are, I think they – are negligible after 162, like they'll even out bad moves, good moves. But I think where he's most responsible is the clubhouse chemistry and the clubhouse chemistry has been established already before he got in there. That was the main problem I had with Tony LaRusso's hiring is that I thought that he would come in and say, Hey, this is my clubhouse instead of like nowadays, you guys know, these are this is the players players game and they're turning into a players game and they're policing themselves. They mm -hmm. don't need the manager to be in there saying like in this paternalistic role. These are grown men. They make more money more than, much more money than Tony Larusa. So yeah, make the lineup, brother. Give me some suggestions, but don't talk to me like a child. Don't call me clueless. So what I if think, he's uh, what if he's motivating them ugh. to to play so well by <laughs> by, by mistreating? What what if what 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 if it's like that movie uh, Whiplash? <laughs> throwing throwing things at him, <laughs> not my simple. <laughs> he might be. We don't know. I'm saying yeah, he didn't say how he punished your mean. Maybe he threw a symbol at his head. <laughs> I mean, I was talking to my guy Chris about this. I'm like. Yeah, there might be methods that he thinks that are have you have worked for him in the past in Oakland and St. Louis, but I'm trying to think of what would throwing your mean Mercedes and Lance Lynn after he spoke out and Lance was saying pretty much like right. if there's a position player out there, there's no rules, and right. then Tony gave that famous line. What is the what is the motivation there for him to talk about another player that? had the story that Yermin Mercedes has, no, I mean, just in general, any player, and then on top of that, Yermin Mercedes with the 10 years in the minors, going through all that he had to go through, problems with managers in the past, having a bad reputation, and now you're trashing him in public. Like, if I've, I've always been watching managers, barely do they trash their own players in the public. They'll go at them in, in private. That's fine. And if he says that, like with Yermin missing, um, I think Tony said a time to show up for the ballpark. Yermin was late. Punish him. Good. I'm fine with that. If he missed the 3-0 sign, all right. Talk to him. But to talk to him and the public about Yermin 
and saying he's clueless, he's a rookie, and it won't happen again, that's garbage. That's true garbage. I don't like a grown man talking to another grown man like he is his boss because he's not his boss. He's just a guy who fills out the lineup sheet. That's it for me. And I, I was kind of surprised to see Lance Herb, Lynn tell us come how out. you feel about managers. <laughs> I was surprised about the Lance Lynn thing just because you talked about this, you know, the – the White Sox roster is, is is a diverse one, and and that's a good thing. Uh, you know, Lance Lynn's kind of on one end of that spectrum. He's a guy, for, you know, the country guy from Indiana, pitched at I would say Mississippi or Mississippi State. I'm going to mess that up. Um, and you know, he's not the kind of guy you'd expect to speak up here. You'd always be expect him to be a guy who would talk about the unwritten rules and talk about how you got to go up to. He played for Tony Larusa, and he and yeah, and he comes <laughs> out and just says, "Hey, like you know, when a position player is pitching, there are no rules. Like this is this is all kind of out the door." Um, do you have a fear of, of, it hasn't gone south yet in terms of team performance. Like, do you have a fear of something? It, it doesn't seem like it's getting better. Is it going to get worse? And is it going to affect the team at some point? I hope it doesn't. I don't have a fear for that. But Lance Lynn is a lieutenant that I think in his private moment probably wasn't cool with your mean swinging 3-0. He's a guy that's probably old school. He probably is on the more of the spectrum of Tony La Russa. Yeah. But the one thing Lance Lynn knows, he's not going to talk badly about his teammate to the public, especially not the media. He's got his back in the media, in public. And that's what he was doing. And so for Tony to take down one of his lieutenants, who probably, and Adam Eaton probably pulled these guys to the side and say, hey, you're mean. Good home run. But... I can understand why the twins and other old school people are mad. This is why, blah, blah, blah. And pull them aside like a man-to-man and tell them, in the league, we probably don't do that. It's old school, but that's why people get mad. And that's fine. But in public, uh, it's just so so uh, against what baseball players are about. Keep the clubhouse, the clubhouse, and everything else is noise that you don't need to listen to. And I think that's White Sox uh, clubhouse is established enough, even with the new people like Adam, and Lance Lynn, that they're not going to be fractured by somebody who's trying to do that. I think they're right now playing for themselves, not necessarily against Tony, but they're playing for themselves in those 26 in there. I mean, they've had injuries that would derail any other team. Eloy, Robert, Jose's missed the last couple of days, but they've come together, and like you said, they get the best run differential in the game, and they're the best team in the American League right now going into New York. You know, you bring up a, a good point just about like how Lance Lynn's not going to criticize a, a, a teammate. And, and like, look, like, if we want to have the most tired debate, like, in that you can have about baseball in 2021, we can talk about what the etiquette is, you know, in a 10 run game. Like, I, I couldn't imagine still like watching a 10 run game, let alone playing in one. So, like, I'm, I'm sort of ambivalent on it. But I think what was weird to me, like, if LaRusso wants to be upset that, you know, Yermin missed a sign, and then he swung 3-0 and all that stuff. Like, whatever, that's fine. And if he wants to, you know, like, chastise him publicly, okay, you know, that's his prerogative. But not defending him after the Twins threw at him? Right. Like, that to me is just like, okay, that that falls into the more, like, sort of just confusing. Because, like, who ben- like who is he impressing in the White Sox room when he doesn't defend that guy? That part I don't get. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to put my head around like a, a we all are some positive outcome that comes out of this from that 
press conference and all the things that happened su- subsequently. Like, is Yermin, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to show him. I, so, like, Yermin had a couple opportunities in Wednesday's game to come through. He didn't look like the same guy. I don't know necessarily if that's players, pitchers adjusting to him and he's going to have a natural decline back to uh, a regular and what norm, normal Yermin will be in the major leagues. Or he's thinking about things that are going on with Tony Larusa. Not necessarily the same situation, but on, I think the day after the Yermin thing happened was a 3-0 count. It was 4-2, to I believe, the White Sox were winning a ball right down the middle. And Yasmani Grandal, he takes a lot of balls right down the yeah. middle. But it's yeah, 3-0, it's delicious, and he just sits there and takes it. I'm like, I don't know if that's because of Tony, but it happened the next day. It's just like... We're trying to win the game, and we lost that. The White Sox lost that game, I think, 5-4 to four in a walk-off. So these type of things, like you're getting your team thinking about things that are not important. How about you get them to think about all the – like they talked before the season about throat stepping and how they took their foot off the pedal after they won the um, – they got into the playoffs last year and they just relaxed. I want them to think about just beating every team to a pulp. And they were doing that versus Minnesota, and now you got to talk about the manager saying it's too much, and you can't do that. That's this is I don't see the positive outcome of Tony's thing. If he's like uh, sometimes managers like Rocco Baldelli the other day, I'm sure he doesn't agree with Duffy throwing the ball at Yermin, but he has to go out there and protect his players and show that he's behind his guys 100 percent no matter what. And he got thrown out of the game. His team got energized. Miguel Sano woke up, hit three home runs, and they won the game. That's mm-hmm. Those things are positive things that you ne- not necessarily think a rant will have for you, but I see Rocco Baldelli's point there. you got to stick up for your guys, and Tony failed at the number one job as a manager. Always protect your guys against everybody else, and don't kowtow to the Twins. F the Twins. <laughs> you can say fuck. It's okay. Okay, it's fuck the Twins every day. I've always been about that. Yeah, Every time I see like them losing the playoffs, I'm a, I'm a fan of it. It was like when you know last year with with the with Fernando Tatis Jr. and and, and the Rangers were like Jace Tingler basically like sided with the Rangers initially. You know he ba- he backed it up like a day later, but like the you know it's just like just defend your players. That's like the one thing you have to do is just like always defend your players. That's the job. Yeah, and I'm sure guys in Padres clubhouse are thinking, are you with us or with them? I know you've been a longtime Texas Ranger employee, but I don't give a damn if Fernando Tatis went out with uh, pom-poms and cheered right in front of the pitcher. You have to be behind your guy, and maybe in private you say, Fernando, we don't do that. But in public, you stand behind Fernando Tatis, and that's what managers should be doing. Otherwise, what do you have the job for? In my view, you're there to impart knowledge, delegate power, and to just, you know, set the lineup and do your best judgment on strategy. Otherwise, if you're going to be throwing him under the bus, you're working against your team, not for them. Um, I, I want to talk about kind of a weird aspect of this, which is the pandemic, believe it or not, in the sense that, you know, we do not have the media in the clubhouse. You know, every, all these interviews are over Zoom. Their, their group settings, like you can't grab a player and do a one-on-one with him. And is Tony benefiting from this? Is Tony kind of getting away with being Tony more because you can't get, you know, a frank private conversation with a player about what's going on? That is a great point. Like, 
if they're like you've seen the reports about Jeff passing um, mm-hmm. saying there's clubhouse uh, confusion and dis- discernment in there. Usually you would have a guy or girl like James Fegan in there just getting a guy to pull him to the side. Hey, you know what? This guy, this guy doesn't like Tony. Tony's doing this. We don't like that. And you don't get that, that one-on-one interaction that you would usually get. And maybe that is uh, contributing. I think that's probably going to happen the whole year that we're going to continue this Zoom thing because I think these uh, Major League Baseball teams like the fact that they can control. Oh, they love it. Yeah. What's yeah. going on. But. The players, so I mean, the Writers Association won't allow this to happen if everything's uh, clear next year. We can have more access to the players. We can get a, a side and say, uh, write the story because there's nobody that's sending us messages. Like, usually, if we're at the ballpark, we'll get a person who works for the team that can pull us aside and knows that we have a voice either at the Locked on Sox podcast or working at the score that can get their message out anonymously. Right now, that's not happening a lot. You know, guys who usually would be leaking stuff are not doing it because the face-to-face is not there. And there's no, you know, putting it on a text is kind of tricky because you can have a paper trail and somebody can say, hey, that's your your guy you had there and he's uh, talking smack about me on his phone. When you just put it in his ear, it's a little easier to deny that, that uh, story going out there. The only person that's sending out stuff is Kenny Williams and Jerry Reinsdorf's guy. Uh, Bob Nightingale. So right now we're not getting a lot of good information from the players themselves. Even Lucas Giolito yesterday in the post game, while he didn't trash Tony, he said he backed up Yermin and they like home runs, which to me, not saying that you support Tony, Mm -hmm. the omission of Tony's name tells me a lot. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be any uh, confusion about what's going on here. Like the, you know, the, the players have made fairly clear without like taking out a billboard that basically says like, we hate this shit that they are not enjoying it. Yeah. And I'm trying to think about last night, they border plane in Minnesota after taking two out of three from them. And they have a special day where they're honoring Yo- uh, Yoan Mankata and his style. And they do these rompers, these f- flavor or fashionable rompers that, Yoan likes to wear, and they're taking the plane to New York on an off day. So they've cleared the 85% protocol, and they're thinking to themselves, this is our first time really to go out with each other in about a year and a half and have each other's back. And we're going to have a good time. We're not going to let the manager mess us up. I think the guys are together and cohesive, and that type of theme night when they're going, it reminds me of Joe Madden doing these steam night road trips and those teams coming together. And maybe they're cheesy and some people might not believe in it. But I think those guys like that. They enjoy each other so much that they want to honor each other uh, by doing Yoan Mankata night. I'm sure there's going to be a Pito night. You saw on opening day, rest in peace, Eloy. They had the jersey. You know, you know, he had an injury and they're just having a jersey in the locker room and Jose's have his uh, batting gloves in there. They all like each other. They all root for each other. And so I don't know if anything's going to pull them apart. But if anybody's trying to, it's the owner and that manager. Oh, I just, uh, please, Jesus, just let them stay out of the way or let Tony get some conscience and say, I'm going to step aside and let Super Joe do it. Herb, what um, does, does the, did the LaRusso hire frustrate you because of the, the, the process, the, you know, the sort of, um, the entitlement issues. I'm just curious because, like, it's very clear. Like, 
you were not a fan of the move. And so I'm just curious what, what parts of it you didn't like. There's multiple things. Rick Hahn, I don't, you know, me and Rick Hahn have had our differences on roster construction and things like that, but it's his team. It was his time finally. He had built this team from mm-hmm. the studs up to this point. Ricky Renteria did not jive with him on his managerial style, and so he got rid of him. It was time for Ricky uh, for uh, Rick Hahn to hire his guy, which I believe was A.J. Hinch, and you could probably spit it a little bit better to that, Kevin, than I can. It was. Yeah, and so he wanted to hire that guy and have a guy that's more lockstep in what he believes is – a manager's job and how a manager is supposed to purport himself during games and, and after games and to be usurped by the owner at the time where you're right here, you're at the precipice had to feel like the worst thing in the world for Rick Hahn. And there's nothing he can do in this regard except for resign. And if he resigns, he probably doesn't get a job because Jerry holds it over his head and says, you can't hire this guy. He has a contract and he holds him back. So he has to do the press conference, and you see in his face when he does the press conference. <laughs> he's exhausted, furious. He doesn't know the T- Tony DUI thing already because only Tony told told um, Jerry Reinsdorf, according to Bob Nightingale's report. And so he has all these emotions going on. And then I don't like Tony Russo on top of this because of his thoughts on Colin Kaepernick. I think right. that he might be a racist and, I mean, I don't throw those words around lightly because his thoughts about Colin Kaepernick were very racist. And he might just have that single thought about that player, but it came off racist to me. And yeah. then he also, I think, what's in it? I think you were speaking to it earlier, Kevin. What's in it for him? He's got championships already. He's got the Hall of Fame. If Tony LaRusso wins another championship, do they say he's better? No, he said you won with a ready-made team. Good job. If he loses... His legacy is not tarnished. People still say, yeah, Hall of Famer Tony Russo, good job. And it goes away. But is there any incentive for Tony LaRusso to get his, what, fourth ring? No. Where is the, like, he just wants to do this because he's bored. The game's different from the front office to the dugout. I mean, that's the reason why. A.J. Hinch has a reason to be in Detroit, or he would have been in Chicago. He wants to clear his name. He wants to show that he can teach these guys the right way to do things and stay away from the wrong ways to do things. And I necessarily didn't want A.J. Hinch as a White Sox manager, but I know he would have been a much better, a much better choice than Tony Russa because I know that man would have the team in mind, not himself in mind. But after all of these things have been done, like if A.J. Hinch wins the championship with the White Sox, everybody's like, redemption. That guy got the job done. And he can go on with his life and say, you know what? The Houston thing, while we didn't necessarily actively cheat, it happened. But now I'm a champion with the White Sox. I got my ring. Now what? What can you say now? We won fair and square. Tony has none of that. There's nothing there for him. So I don't know why Jerry would do the thing he did to his general manager, his vice president president of baseball operations, Kenny Williams. And then now – you see all this stuff going on. None of these guys are speaking because they can't. Like a regular GM would speak about his manager throwing his team under the bus. He would actually have a press conference and say, I don't like this. He's fired. Rick Hahn's nowhere to be seen. He's neutered. He can't do anything. He's, his power's usurped. He has to stay here. I would do, I would, if I was counseling Rick, I would say, 
what can he do to you? If he if you speak up against Tony and you fire and he fires you, Colorado will call you the second he fires you and say, "Here, executive VP of baseball operations." Sure, the Cubs will call him, and I don't know if he'll take the GM job under Jed Hoyer, but it's open. So, I think Rick is working with house money right here. There's nothing for him to lose. So, him or Kitty need to speak up and say, "I don't like what's going on." This is a message to my fans, and I'm standing behind the players that I picked to win this championship and showing them support in public against the guy that was not my choice and that probably has more power than me. So I think Rick should do that. He probably won't, but that's the best move. What what can Jerry do? His hands are tied. He's not firing Rick Hahn. Uh, Herb, first of all, we're 24 minutes in. I wish you would come at us with some strong opinions and some emotion. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, your job is, is in Chicago sports media. You, know, you you are every day. You're part of the score, which is the the, one, the, the big sports talker here. Um, you have this daily Sox podcast. I mean, you certainly are hearing from Sox fans, maybe as much as anyone around. And, you know, when on the radio, you're not taking calls about how the Bears need to bring back Ditka to get some fire. And people are talking about the White Sox. Like, what's the balance right now in kind of White Sox fandom? Between like how much are they just talking about? Hey, this team is really good and also a lot of fun to watch. And hey, Tony Larusa stuff. Like, what's the balance there? Are, are people, you know, are fans in general kind of focused on really good, really fun team, or are they kind of distracted by the shit show over in the corner here? As of lately, it's all been Tony Larusa. Even with the victories over Minnesota and going what ten of thir- ten of three, ten and three against Minnesota and Kansas City in the last thirteen, it's the focus is on Tony Larusa. When the White Sox lost that game in Cincinnati, I think it was a walk off one to nothing loss to the Cincinnati Reds. When he had Liam Hendricks leading off the top of the inning at second base, your closer, right. and not knowing the rules. That was a big flashpoint. He had one earlier in the year where he left Matt Foster in the game way too long in Seattle. So he, when they win, it's kind of in the back of your mind. So most of the fans are like, yeah, we're happy for this team and they're doing well. Tony's not contributing. But when he sticks his, his nose into the business of White Sox, like that game in Cincinnati, and fans think that he's costing us games, he's the, like, if I had to break it down, 85% of the ire or the attention of White Sox fans on Twitter, on our show, when we get post-game calls, it's Tony La Russa sucks, why they have this guy. I I would be, I think I should be resigned to the fact that he's going to not go anywhere. But I think if we yell enough, if we scream enough, if we are exasperated enough, maybe he'll get a conscience and say, I don't need this and I'm out. Or Jerry will say, do your job, Rick, and fire him, because I can't. But uh, I would say when we're when we're rolling and we're having a good time and winds are going off and there's nothing that Tony LaRusso is doing negative, people are generally happy. I would say that 75% of the time people are still talking about the players, and the 25 is reserved for, man, I hope this manager doesn't fuck it up. Uh Herb, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, it, it, let's let's get your plugs out. You can listen to 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 Herb daily on the White Sox, just uh, on on the Locked On Sox podcast. Um, you can watch him twiddle the boards on Twitch when the when the scorers is, is putting their stuff on Twitch. Um, if you want to follow him on Twitter, 
you go to, I'm not going to try to say it because it's Lawrence backwards. It's E-C-N-E-R-W-A-L 23. Uh, being a Chicago in 23, I'll just assume that's for Adrian Gonzalez. It's for uh, Jake Lamb. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or Brian Dahlbach. Actually, so, it's, for, it's for Robin Ventura, who's my favorite player growing up. Is he really? He is my favorite player uh, playing baseball. So when he was a manager, I was like, ah, guys, tough Robin. Real tough. <laughs> <laughs> Never meet your heroes. Exactly. So uh, listen, to, listen to Locked on Sox. Follow her on Twitter. Her, thanks so much for coming on. I know you got a busy day ahead of you. I appreciate it, Kevin Andy. It's awesome to be on this show and uh, awesome to get some uh, thoughts out and some some pressure out. Ugh, it feels uh, <laughs> feels great. Now you, you, can my, go, yeah, you can go you have got a nice my number. Day. Yeah, you got my number. If you just want to call and let it fly sometime, let me know. Just, yeah. just yell at you. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to get some pizza pros. you wouldn't be the first. We can go out and get some pizza pros in DeKalb. At some point, we're getting close, right? Oh, I love the pizza pros. So delicious. Well, I'll meet you there. All right. Okay. I'll talk to you later. All right. Thank you, guys. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks to Herb Lawrence for joining us and letting it fly on the White Sox. Uh, musical guest time. Very excited about this one. Our musical guests are Decibels. And um, this is French punk rock. And, and it's France has a really great musical history that I don't think is appreciated that much over here. Um, like late 60s, early 70s French pop, like Serge Gainsbourg stuff is amazing. Uh, and they've always had a pretty... Uh, raucous underground and punk scene. If they, people think of the French as just like these 
studi snowic people and i think that's a weird thing that comes from movies and cartoons or bad american pop culture it's not true like france is a pretty rebellious place at times i'm you know, you talked about you like to read. I like to read too, and and like one of my favorite subjects is is what happened in in Europe overall in the late sixties, um, mm-hmm. which was a pretty radical leftist movement came up, and um, you know, I, I like reading things about like the 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 Paris Paris sixty eight where they had riots and, and a national strike at one point. Like they, yeah, they, yeah. like talk about like leftists getting shit done, not just going on Twitter <laughs> and saying the president looks like a Cheeto and thinking I'm a, poli- I'm political. Um, like people really doing shit and like, you know, and, and reading about even more radical things like, you know, Bader Meinhof in Germany and, and, and the red army faction in Italy. Um, but yeah, France gets shit done and they, they can be radical, but this is, uh, this is decibels. Uh, this is their bio. It's a great bio. Uh, buckle up fellows. We're in for a hell of a loud ride. Uh, this edgy punk trio from Lyon, led by Fanny and Sabrina, who met at elementary school and have never left each other since, regularly riots with its aggressive guitar riffs, brutal bass lines, and sharp vocal harmonies, sweetened with just the perfect amount of pop catchiness. After more than 10 years of existence, three EPs, two LPs, and tons of show wrecking the European noise punk scene with their raw energy, for their latest album, Rock Francois, or Rock Francais, Francais. Uh, the band joined forces with the legendary sound guru and friend of the podcast, Steve Albini, came to Chicago and recorded this at Electric Audio Studios. Uh, even if you forget everything you knew about French rock and were only able to hear Decibel's rock, you rock would still sound pretty fucking awesome. Uh, they also let me know that they had a great time in Chicago and hope to come back someday, maybe meet and, quote, maybe watch a baseball game for real and I ho- and hoping it is more interesting than on TV. Um well, after what we talked about in the first segment, Decibels, it might not be. So, uh, stay home. You ever, have you ever watched, have you ever gone to a baseball game with someone not from the United States for whom baseball is a foreign thing? I don't think so, no. It is a good time. Okay. Because <laughs> it's, it's the reason why, I, it, it really is, it's the way I always explain it. It's the reason I love baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't love any other sport except for sumo. Like, I don't love any other. I don't love football. I don't care about football. I don't. I don't watch football. I don't watch basketball. I don't. Watch, I don't. They're all. They're all the same basic thing, which is I have a ball or a puck or whatever, and I'm going to try to get it to that end. You're going to try to prevent it, and then we'll then we'll switch sides and do the other thing, right? And baseball is, is such a weird game with all these abstractions, and I think it's one of the reasons I love it. It's so weird. But if you go to a game like with, um, with someone from Europe, with someone from Europe, baseball is not part of the culture. It is something else. Like they are so confused. I and we're so, we're so lucky to just kind of grown up with it and understand it. It is a very confusing game to people. Like the way, even though it is almost baseball adjacent, I, they, I think they feel the way I feel when I watch cricket. Yeah. Well, it's, like, it's, what the it's fuck a, is going on here? It's a very strange game. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's an objectively weird game. Right. Um, so anyway, th- thanks again to, to Decibels. And, and uh, I can't recommend what they do enough. Uh, look them up. They have great videos on YouTube and everything. They are really, really good. Um, and, and, and thrilled to play them on the show. And, and glad that uh, they were able to get in touch and let us play their music. Um, you ready for emails? Yeah, I do just want to make one quick Steve Albini thing. Um, yeah. I think I may have emailed you about this uh, at some point a couple years ago. But uh, so as, as many people know, uh, Steve Albini won uh, the uh, 2018 World Series of Poker $1,500 seven-card stud event. No, um, it, it, was a, it was a senior event. 
Uh, no, he just was the straight. Oh, you're right. He won. The, he won. You're right. He won the stud event. Yes. Yeah. And so he won. He won the stud event. And uh, the next year, he was actually in the commentators booth uh, during the live stream of the of the same event. Right. And uh, so he's in the booth for like two hours, and he's just like helping. You know, he's he's the color guy basically. And at no point does anyone mention what Steve Albini does. That you're for Steve a Albini. Yeah. He, he's just presented as, and we're here with Steve Albini, who won this event last year, and Steve Albini doesn't talk. Talk about what he does, doesn't mention any of his, you know, production credits, doesn't like, he's just like, yeah, so he's got a two card here and, uh, we're really, you know, he's really got, got a lot of backdoor equity there. If he continues, it just, it was, it was really riveting <laughs> because I was at the point, I just can't, I couldn't stop watching because I was like, all right, like at some point he's going to ask him about Nirvana, right? Nope, <laughs> just never came up. Never going to come great. up. It was great. Uh, yeah, that band plays a lot of poker. God bless him. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, first email comes from Ricky, uh, and Ricky says when the Astros were World Series contenders, kind of still are Ricky, uh, and the Blue Jays were rebuilding, they connected a handful of times on trades. Three that come to mind are Teoscar, Aledmus Diaz, and Aaron Sanchez deals. Uh, they all made sense as the Jays seemed to try and pick off the best players who couldn't quite fit on a contender's 40-man roster and could offer short-term help in return. What I'm curious about is whether teams get more comfortable trading with certain partners, and if so, why? Did you or anyone else from the front office just get along really well with someone like Tony LaCava? Did scouting for one trade make you better prepared for their guys for the next one? Uh, and so this is a fun question because, I yeah, we reconnected when I was, I shouldn't say we anymore, but when I was with the Astros, they connected with the, with the Blue Jays a lot. Um, and it really was just... It wasn't because there was some sort of like special good relationship there. We just kind of matched up with them, like you said, a few times. It wasn't like, oh, we get along with them well and they're easy to deal with and we can get them. It was just those are the deals that worked out. Um, it There is no like, real pattern to it. I think it's just like a random draw and the Blue Jays number came up more than the other team's numbers. There certainly are some teams that are um, incredibly difficult to deal with. Um, when I was with the Astros, uh, the team couldn't get anything even close to the finish line with the Rays, for example, hmm. um, they it was just seen as impossible, and, um, and and never even got to a point where like you couldn't even get to the point of considering. And it's just I think some of that's because the the Rays are, are looked at players similarly in a way, and so it's tough to, to you know they we didn't have secrets from them, they didn't have secrets from us. Just like oh we're gonna get this guy we really like, and maybe they don't realize it, they realize it, um, and so we never really matched up. But I, it wasn't like there was some sort of like special relationship with someone there. It was just could tend to work things out with them. And I think it really was just luck of the draw and it could have been any other teams. There are teams you work with better than others. Um, and sometimes cause it's a, it's cause you see players differently. Um, but there was no sort of like special thing with the Jays. It just kind of lined up that way. Um, next email comes from, I think it's Neil because I checked it. He spells it N I E L. That's probably Neil, right? It feels like a Neil. It feels like Neil. We're going to call you Neil. Um, you wrote in last week's chat that the Players Union pushes players hard to take the most money to benefit all players. My question is, how does the union push the players? Does the union just explain that signing the biggest contract is the best for all players, or does the union have other tools to push the players? Um they don't have other tools, really. They, they don't really have some sort of specific leverage. You better take this contract or else. And not every guy takes the biggest number, but they're all very strongly pushed in that direction via phone call, as well as um, peer pressure from other members of the union who are also players to like 
take the biggest deal because again it benefits all players if you can get a bigger deal you are raising the the bar and raising the market for everybody and that's kind of what the purpose of a union is and there are players who want to play somewhere else and don't want to play other places and maybe won't do it but for the most part guys are going to take the most money um you've covered big market teams and mm-hmm. small market teams mm. with the royals I, if you want to call them that I, I hate those terms everyone's a big market team this is, they're all making tons of money but I, you know the royals did you ever get the sense like the royals would spend was ever kind of willing to spend big money to make a splash like i always think about when the nationals first got going and they signed jason worth to too big a contract and i, yeah. I get it i got it i guess it was too big a contract in terms of just money to talent but it was like it was them saying hey we're here like and we're spending and and, and kind of putting a foothold in things they never really did that but one thing that that dayton moore did do at least during the uh the winters when I was around is he he would be more aggressive on like mid tier players yeah so like he signed Jason Vargas to a four year deal you know which right like, you know you're like ah oh, that's pretty crazy like that's kind of crazy but you know Vargas actually ended up being you know they got a decent return on that four year deal I'd say mm-hmm. even with Vargas missing a year with Tommy John they still like you know it was it, it it was more like they would pay a premium to get a player. Um, but they did that for like guys in the middle of the market. They didn't even really consider the top end of the market, um, right? And and that I and I do think those players actually get a little more pressure from, from yeah. the union in, in terms of, of signing for the biggest deal, just in the sense that that's the market that they that they're trying to make sure the the bar stays high, right? Like it like you know Jason Vargas getting four years at his rate helps a whole hell of a lot more players than an elite player getting 30 million cuz there's not that many elite players. Yeah, like you saw that this winter, right? Like George Springer got about what he should have gotten, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, JT Realmuto got what he should have gotten, Bauer got what he wanted, you know, within within his parameters, but like, you know, the Jock Petersons and Eddie Rosarios of the world like kind of got owned a little bit. Um, you know, and that's I think who what the who the union worries more about than the top end guys. Right. Um so yeah, and I, I think you obviously see that continuing. Um and that leads us to uh, another union kind of question, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, Andy. This comes from JD. Uh and JD says, since everyone's predicting a tumultuous bargaining process for the next round of labor negotiations, let's assume both sides do the most reasonable thing. Bad assumption, JD. And appoint <laughs> yeah, you the, and, First and, time? Yeah, and appoint you and your co-host arbiters of the next CBA. We got something to do now, Andy. Uh, leaving aside issues where reasonably certain will be included, things like universal DH and expanded playoffs, what are the things you two would implement that you think would improve the current state of Major League Baseball and set a foundation for future growth and prosperity? I have a couple ideas. You got anything that comes to mind immediately? Yeah, but like no one's going to like them. No, go hit me that. Let's yeah. do it. Well, I'd get rid of the wild card game. Um, I would uh, I would contract two teams and get it down to twenty eight, and um, yeah, and I'd, I'd make it so that only four teams make the postseason instead of uh, whatever it is, or no, eight teams make the postseason, um, and then yeah, I don't know. I would just yeah. That's okay. I, yeah. No I one mean, likes this. No one likes. No, this, no one's but... gonna like that. I mean, there's certainly expanded playoffs, like you said, are gonna be a part of it. I but expanded like... playoffs are like are awful. They're awful. They're so bad for the, for the sport. But they uh, make. But they they give you TV playoff games. And they make a tremendous amount of money because of it, and that's what this is. Oh, about. so when we talk about the health of the sport, we're talking about the owners getting rich. 
that is unfortunately that's what the health of the sport is right okay I mean, then expand the playoffs worse. yeah you know they should expand the playoffs and you know make it so it's 28 man rosters and yeah you know whatever actually they should add expansion teams because the product isn't garbage already it would no, be better no. if we had more teams I like your 28 team thing because it lets me do what I always thought would be the smartest thing to do in terms of scheduling, which is okay. forget it, forget American. So, and you can do this with 28 teams, and you're going to listen to this and you're going to go, "Oh my God, Kevin, this is the best idea ever." Um, <laughs> so, 28 teams, right? So you have 27 opponents, right? You play every team six times: a three-game series at home and a three-game series on the road, all 27, and that's 162 games, right? Okay, and so. I think this does great things for attendance and television because um, if the Cubs are coming to town once a year and the Yankees are coming to town, every team's coming to town once a year. And that's your one chance to see them. Hmm. I don't like this. Why not? Because people like watching their, their rivalries. They like watching, you know, Dodgers, Padres, Giants, Dodgers, and yeah. Cubs, Cardinals, and, you know, Yankees, Red Sox, and... And, you know, Pirates, Brewers. I mean, who doesn't love watching <laughs> the Pirates play the Brewers 18 times a year? Um, yeah. Rockies, I don't, Mets. I don't know. Right. Well, no, but they don't. But the Rockies, Mets, like now when the Rockies come to New York, like it's an event, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just no one cares. Um, versus, you know, when they play the, well, I don't know, maybe, the, I guess the Phillies, you know, are a big deal. You know, the Braves coming to town is a big deal. But I don't, yeah. I don't know. I like. I like the division rivalry. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's a tough one. I think the one thing I would be focused on would be um, creating a set of rules in terms of rosters and service time that uh, greatly incentivize teams to put their best team on the field. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that are not doing that now. Obviously, you know, service time manipulation is a, is a real thing, but the rules encourage it and the rules um, make it so teams feel that that's the best thing for them to do. And I think you got to get rid of those rules. And I think there's a couple ways to do that. Um, one is starting a player's service time the second they sign. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you know, you sign as a college player and you have eight years of that player. And so if you call them up in three months, you get seven and a half years in the big leagues. And if it takes some time, it takes some time. But like after eight years of him with that team and, and maybe 10 for high school, 12 for international, he's a free agent, period. Mm. Um, or free agent at 29 is a thought. Or the other thought that, that someone threw out at me that I was, was interested in and wanted to think through more was just the sense that um, in your first year, if you get more than some number, let's call it 60 days, um, you start the next year at 1.0. So, you know, to avoid kind of the service time manipulation or, or any sort of super two talk. Like, so, this is, you know, if, if, if you get, once you get 60 days in a season, you automatically move up to 1.0 the next year. You have a full year of service time. Hmm. Um, and this prevent this allows teams to, or, or incentivizes teams to, 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 to break camp with their best roster. Right. Um, and not wait till May or, um, you know, I, when I worked in a front office, and I know every team does this, like there was literally somebody keeping track of everyone coming up, everyone who might come up and, and trying to predict, if you will, what, what the super two line would be. Right. Right. right you know, right now, based on who's coming up, it's, it's probably going to be May 24th. Like it was like people were, were trying to nail the date of, of a super two time. Mm-hmm. Um, so they could go past it. And I think you need to, we need to put rules into place that incentivize teams to put their best team on the field and not 
pulled the kind of stuff they did with with Chris Bryan or more recently Jared Kelnick, um, and just say like this is our best product. Period. Right. Yeah, I think like when fans get mad at uh, you know the Mariners for what they did with Kelnick, it's like every baseball team is going to do that because they're incentivized to do it, and right. so you just have to change the incentive structure. Right. The rules tell you you should yeah, do it. Like you, you know, the, you talk to any you know like general manager they will tell you that you know what they that they view their mandate is optimizing within the confines of the rules you know what can we do Mm -hmm. within the rules to make this team better um and yeah so like i think the 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 changes have to be fundamentally like incentivizing teams to spend incentivizing teams to try and win incentivizing teams to try and build super teams and keep them together um you know that those are the sort of things that need to be emphasized but that's difficult to do you know and the owners have no interest in doing that no so like it's kind of makes it kind of makes it difficult do you i don't know anyone um, who doesn't think this is going to be a uh, a nasty time with the mm-hmm. with the upcoming CBA? I mean, do you feel like everybody else I've talked to on the show so far that we're in trouble in terms of labor negotiations? I feel like when I have conversations about it, it's usually presented in a pretty uh, uh, dark and alarming fashion. But I also don't like ask everyone I talk to about it, so it's you know again, it might be like a self selecting. Yeah, group of people who are you know very concerned that there's going to be you know a lockout or stoppage of some sorts. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the threat is very real. I think you know the 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 players are very very frustrated. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, the, uh, last year, as I said, the the damage from 2020, the tail from 2020 is going to go on for a long time. So uh, yeah. that can certainly be a part of it. I think the 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 biggest problem uh, is that is that neither side's happy with the current situation. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, often in a negotiation, like, we're going to have a problem. Like, the players aren't happy. The owners are fine with how things are. The players aren't happy. But right now, the players aren't happy with how things are, and neither are the owners. Yeah. And I think that's going to create all sorts of trouble. And and, and again, the, the, the CBA expires on December 1st. Um, I think it's 98% chance that the CBI expires without a new deal in place. Yeah. Um, once it does happen, um, and this is not... I'm sure it'll be perceived by baseball Twitter as an act of aggression. It's not. It's just like how the legal world works. Like once that happens, the players will be locked out, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which means the offseason will come to a screeching halt. Mm-hmm. Um, you you can't sign, you know, while the players are locked out, you cannot make trades. You can't sign free agents. Um, and then like there is no deadline really to negotiations. There's all these artificial deadlines. And I, like the, the, the rubber is not going to hit the road on this probably until January. Um, right. when teams start worrying about getting, it takes about a month logistically to get ready for spring training. Mm-hmm. Um, so really until we get into the second part of January, maybe even early February, I don't think things are going to get too serious. And I think it's going to get real ugly. Um, yeah. and, and I mean like people losing jobs, ugly. like, you know, obviously you know, once you're in that situation, teams are going to do what they did because of COVID and lay people off and it's going to be, it's going to not be a good time for anybody yeah i think i think it's uh i think it's gonna be ugly um you know i could be wrong but like i think you know as we saw last summer um you know the the owners do not particularly care if they you know look bad uh Mm. they're they're kind of just gonna they're gonna look out for for their interests so yeah I, i suspect it will not be great our next email comes from someone who asked to remain anonymous um 
It's, I, I actually, it's funny because I said I, I didn't find the question to be the kind of thing you would, but I talked to him about it. I understand why he wants to be anonymous. Happy to give it to him. Uh, and he wrote, when you or any scout are scouting a pitcher at a college game, do the scouts ever talk to the plate umpire from the game? As a collegiate umpire, I have always seen the scouts at the game, but never really had a conversation with them after the game. We do see things that might not be easily seen from the stands. I'm just wondering if that was a practice used. I have never seen any scout talk to an ump after the game. I think it's frowned upon. I think the umps are kind of just like in in, in Major League Baseball, the umps are kind of their own thing. And, and they only, you know, if, if even if there's a play, they kind of just release a statement and rarely make themselves right. available. Um, it's umpires. Certainly you do pay attention to the ump when you're scouting just because and please don't take this wrong, Mr. Collegiate umpire, but like umpires at below the major league level. I mean, you think they're bad at the big league level. They're actually very good. Like umpires. And I know they're just, they're working their way up just like minor leaguers and they're working their way up just like college players. But umpires at, at, at amateur baseball are often, I won't say always, they're often really bad. Um, and I always remember seeing Clayton Kershaw, his first full season um, in the Midwest League. Um, and he pitched remarkable and he was fantastic. And it was clear this was one of the best pitching prospects in baseball. He also walked like four or five guys mm. because the umpire literally could not deal with his breaking ball well they, they would just give up on it they just gave up on it and like he's like god did he land that that was amazing wow he called that a ball um <laughs> it's just like i feel bad for him because like you just pitched great and and just like the umpire literally couldn't deal with how good your stuff was yeah you know and, and you do see that a lot and you do have to kind of adjust because i there's i've seen some awful umpiring at the amateur level and it's it's tough mm-hmm. yeah it's i'm looking at it he had a 4.6 walks per nine uh, in the mes- Midwest League, which yeah, you know, in the big leagues is not how often he walks people, uh, right? Now, like, and it wasn't, and it, and it wasn't totally a matter of a young kid learning how to right. do it. It was, it was literally umpires <laughs> not knowing how to deal with that breaking ball, just giving up on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, well, it was he gave hysterical. up on it too. He just throws sliders now. Yeah, he's 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 uh, he's kind of <laughs> good. Is he? Uh, he seems like a really good dude. Um, obviously, you dealt with him. Is he a really good dude? Uh, I mean, yeah, the people around him, you know, all say that. I mean, I I found I find him endlessly um, fascinating. I mean, I think mm-hmm. he is. Um, how do I phrase this? Um, I was very glad that I got to cover him. I think mm-hmm. that um, he is a very interesting person. I think it was a real challenge because um, for as polite and professional as he is and accountable he is not the most open human being in the world and i think trying to write interesting stories about him is um a real challenge that i very much enjoyed when i was on the beat and still you know have uh tried since i've come off the beat but i think um you know dylan hernandez from the la times uh you know guest of the former show Mm -hmm. uh has uh you know he and i would always talk about how like if you went to dodger stadium at at 2 p.m you know before any game you'd see you know ken gernick in the press box and clayton kershaw running in the outfield and every day that was what was going on and uh, i think when you're around kershaw on a regular basis, you um, you gain an appreciation for just his level of like commitment, uh, and and you also see why so few other people are at his levels because they just don't work with the consistency that he does. Because human beings are not meant to work that way. Right. So um, does he is is he kind of 
he's given some good quotes lately. Is he kind of just boring on a quote level? It's uh, it's not even boring per se because like well sometimes it reads boring, but interviewing him can be sometimes like riveting because mm. he's very uh, he's very controlled, and so. You know, the thing I would always say is, like, he is going to say to you what he wants to say to you, Mm -hmm. um, and you're not going to sort of, like, dislodge him from that position. So there will be times where he will hint at something deeper, and then if you try and dig at it, it's just like, nope, not not discussing it, you know. Um, And so it's like, you're always kind of wondering, like, hey, is he going to, like, is he actually going to, you know, like, get into this? And then sometimes he'll kind of dip in and out and then he you know like sometimes you like I, I wrote about this a couple of years ago but like one of my favorite uh things that he would do is um he would just walk away mid-interview um because he had somewhere to be and so yeah. he, he would just be like all right i'm leaving and you'd be like oh okay you know he <laughs> like but it would just kind of happen without warning um uh, yeah, yeah. I, I asked you about the boring thing for a reason and, and we should have mentioned this earlier but i, I want to bring it up now um former podcast co-host randy wilkins uh announced this week that he is uh, directing a Derek Jeter documentary for yeah. ESPN, a multi-part thing, and very happy for Randy. It was funny because yeah, like awesome. he was going to come on and co-host the show, and then and then he's like, oh, I gotta wait, I gotta want to wait until I can announce this thing that's coming. I'm like, what is? It? He's like, I really can't tell you. I'm like, I, I, I get it, I get it. And then it's like, can you announce yet? He's like, no. He's like, ah, let's just do the show. I'm like, yeah, absolutely, come on. And we still can't talk about it. And and it finally got announced. But when I think about Derek Jeter and his dealings with the media. And I think it served him well, but drove the media crazy. Um, obviously he's in New York, um, which is the craziest of media markets. And, you know, until kind of the end of his career, like maybe with the gift bag thing, um, he really stayed out of the back page. You know what I mean? And it was cause <laughs> it, it was because he was so boring, but I think it was by design. I think it was, I think it wasn't, I don't think he was naturally that way. I think he was very much by design. I thought it was very calculated, actually, that if you talk to him, he was just going to give you, you know, yeah, we're just taking it one day at a time. Team's playing well. It's a great group of guys, you know, like that. And I thought it was, and he did it for almost two decades. And I thought it served him well as far as surviving in that world. I think, uh, you know, you're forgetting the greatest uh, back page appearance of Jeter's career is when he uh, was taken, had a picture taken at an unflattering angle and the post uh, headline was Derek Eater. Uh, that was, <laughs> that's, that's one of the greatest of all time. I mean, that's, yeah, Derek Eater. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, to be uh, in that sort of market, and L.A. is, you know, not as intense a market as um, New York, but it's relatively close. I think to yeah. be the face of a franchise like that for, in Kershaw's case, you know, a little over 10 years, and in Jeter's case, you know, like, whatever, 15. I mean, I think, like, you just kind of have to be pretty controlled, and you have to be uh, both, like... It's kind of a self-survival mechanism, in a way. Yeah, and it's like, no one would ever accuse Jeter of, like, not being accountable. If the team didn't play well, he would come out and talk and say... Yeah, he never avoided. Yeah, and Kershaw's the same way. I mean, like, if you, you know, you know, Clayton, you know, unfortunately for him, has obviously had a, a, a series of unfortunate events happen in the postseason and after everyone he is there at his locker explaining it he doesn't sugarcoat it he doesn't make excuses he just you know like i mean just the the interview that he gave after 
the the post game in uh, 2019 after he gave up the homers to Rendon and Soto, you know, in in the DS where he just said everything they say about me in the postseason is true. I mean, like that's a level of vulnerability and mm-hmm. you know honesty that is that is pretty rare. But you know that's that is I think because he chooses to be accountable you know he doesn't as i said he doesn't make excuses he doesn't you know blame the fact that the baseballs are juiced or blame the fact that he was pitching in relief for no good reason or any of that stuff like he just you know i should have pitched better um and i think you have to in order to survive right like you can't you, you know you have to be accountable and accommodating but also you know controlled and i think yeah. he's a he's a master of that yeah, I always remember, like, a quick stupid story that has no point, but I don't care. Um, 2017 World Series uh, in Houston, my uh, my wife and I were staying at the same hotel the Dodgers were staying at. Um, and after a game, he didn't pitch in. Um, we went to the hotel bar just to have a drink before we went to bed, right? Mm-hmm. And there was, like, this, um, we were sitting, and, and across from us was this huge family. Um, having a, a really good time. And then Kershaw showed up. And, you know, Kershaw's from Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Kershaw and his wife and, and a baby. And, and they just sat there. And they, they, they looked like the happiest people alive. And I just, I just I, I, there's no point to the story. I just I always remember that when I think about 2017, um, is seeing Kershaw, like, away from the field with his baby and, and just very, very happy. Yeah, he's a, someone who very much, you know, uh, cares about his family. It yeah. seems. I mean, you know, I, I, I would, you know, look, we don't know the inner lives of these people. You know, no. we don't know them as well as you pretend to. But I would be pretty surprised to find out if Clayton Kershaw wasn't a, a good father. Yes, yeah. it, it seems to be something that is very important. Our final email comes from Phil. I'm just going to read this all in one shot because I think it's important to do it that way. <laughs> And Phil says, do you think Natural Born Killers is Tommy Lee Jones' best performance? Personally, I do. As an aside, I'm drinking. Greetings, guest. Apologies for being rude. Do fastballs actually rise? I spent a year or so in Florida living, drinking, smoking. And the asinine thing is that I never saw any baseball in the 90s. In my opinion, 80 grade FaceTime of... 80 grade face at time of filming plus he played something different it's fun to watch a non-position player try to display want and fail because they're still really ducking good duck duck gray duck um tommy lee jones best performance is is no country for old men but i just want to say uh, and, and and really an appeal to the readers again send us emails we we read them all you guys really came through this week. we've got a lot of great emails and, and more than any other week um keep sending them at, at chin music at fangraphs.com but this is my plea to you more drunk emails um, this came at about one thirty in the morning. <laughs> um, and I, we were still up cause my wife and I are both late night people. And I looked at my phone, I had this email and I just looked at my wife and I said, Oh, I got a drunk email. And I was so excited. So, uh, if you are drunk or high, really, you know, if you're under the influence of, please email the podcast while under the influence of something, because we can get things like this. Um, Tommy Lee Jones, best performance. What do you got? Well, it's not double jeopardy. I'll tell you that. It's much. no country for old men. Uh, it might be. Yeah, I don't know. The, I watched. I rewatched The Fugitive the other day. It was pretty good. That's not a bad movie. No, it's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, No Country is. Yeah, that's a that's a great film. The epic. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, fantastic. that's like an actually good film. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to really think about his catalog. He's kind of a yeah. Wasn't he like Al Gore's roommate? I've never heard this. I think he was. Hold on. I'm looking this up. I'm almost positive he's Al Gore's roommate. Let's do the wiki thing. At Tennessee. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. He oh, it wasn't uh, uh, yeah, it was at Harvard. Oh wow, so he's a Tommy Lee Jones went to Harvard. A snooty Harvard man. Yeah, wow. I thought it was the University of Tennessee, but I had that disappointed wrong. him now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the more you know. Yeah. So again, email the podcast chinmusicandfangraphs.com. Uh, I guess this is also the time where I tell you if you listen to us on Apple stuff to rate and review us, it helps. I can't explain how. Um, <laughs> moment of culture time. Are you ready for this, Andy? Yes. Do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? You can go first, yeah. So uh, my wife and I caught up on a four-part documentary on HBO that I guess aired a few months ago. Um, but when things air don't matter in this world anymore because you just stream it when you want to watch it. Um, called Murder on Middle Street, and uh, really enjoyed that. That was really fascinating. Uh, you know, it's 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 certainly uh, you know, obviously true crime is a genre that uh, has exploded, and everybody likes to watch it in kind of a I don't know how to put it, um, kind of a gross way. But this is not this is not pandering or, or kind of appealing to mm. our, our, our how much we love to see you know gruesomeness. It's um. It's fascinating because it's by a, a young documentary filmmaker, and that's what he is. He's a documentary filmmaker, um, but he is part of the subject of this in the sense that he goes back to um, his where he was living, his town in, in Connecticut, um, fairly well-off Connecticut, where 10 years ago his mother was murdered. Um, oh, and it is an unsolved case. Oh, boy. And so like he is that he is the documentarian, but obviously he has a significant connection to the story itself. He's not coming from the outside. Sure. Um, and he returns 10, you know, he started doing this just three years after she was killed. But it's now this happened in 2010. It's now, 10, I guess, 11 years later and 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 starts to try to figure out what the hell happened. Um, and you think it's going to be. In the first episode, you think it's just going to be really kind of a mystery, and then you get some ideas of what may have happened here, even though the, no one's ever been arrested. Um, and, and in the, over the course of these years, he starts to uncover all sorts of family secrets um, about his father, about his now late mother, um, about other members of the family and aunts and uncles that create all sorts of questions and things about his own mother that he just flat out didn't know. Um and things about his father, he just flat out didn't know. And it seems like his father, who uh, you know was a multimillionaire and was like the CEO of a of a of a, a power company, you know, like an okay. electric company, right? Um, and lost that job due to some sort of scandal, um, and then seemed to be possibly involved in some sort of weird international money laundering. Later, um, his mother was doing something that happened on the East Coast in the in the early two in the in like a decade ago that, that kind of caught on and then shut down. Um, called gifting tables okay and, and without getting into details it's a pyramid scheme okay um, and she was involved with that and then like the ants and one of the and all sorts of other you know problems with ants and cry and like there was all sorts of family people who might have done something like this and you know one of the ants is actually con you know absolutely convinced that her daughter his sister was involved um okay. and there's eight million and it just it's really well done. And I just think, I think one of the more fascinating things was just the angle, which is like, I'm the documentarian here, but this is my mom. Mm -hmm. You know, this, I'm not just coming in and doing this thing about this crime that happened. I'm connected to it. Um, and it's really, it's well done. It's fascinating. It's one of those things where like, you know, you can binge it if you want. I think we, we did it in three nights. We did like episode one, episode two, and then three and four back to back. Um, but really, really good. And in the world of, of, of true crime stuff where most of it is like, you know, crap on discovery plus where, 
you know, pictures of murderers and going in and he murdered them and (laughs) it stuck a claw hammer at least 27 times. You know, it's like this was, I I think, more empathetic and and, and really, really interesting and, and, and lots of unexpected twists and turns. Right. It's not like one of those true crime shows where you're like, yeah, yeah the, the guy's guilty. Why are you trying to exonerate him? He very right. clearly did this. Like, exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and so yeah, it was really interesting. Um, there's and, this uh, moment in uh, there's this moment in making a mur- actually I don't I don't feel like getting into it. Uh, yeah, just making I had a lot of problems with making a murderer. Anyway, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting. What do you got? Uh, I, uh, I have a music recommendation. Uh, mm. it's a group called Car Talk. Uh, one word. I love that. So those two middle-aged, uh, guys from Boston. They take phone calls and they answer questions about cars. <laughs> yes. Yes. They, they, now they're, now they're making music. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, th- uh, they put out an album last year called, uh, Pass Like Pollen, uh, that I actually just listened to this week for the first time, and it was very, very good. Um, I would recommend it if you like, uh, you know, Great Grandpa, Barely Civil, uh, Camp Trash, stuff like that. It's kind of like, uh, you know, lo-fi-ish, emo-ish stuff. I, I enjoy mm-hmm. Where are they from? Uh, Los Angeles. We won't hold that against them. Nah, that's all right. It's a good town. I used to. Do you like there. LA? I I did. Yeah. I um. You know, we're gonna, we're, gonna, to... we're gonna move into catching up with Andy now. Do sure. you like Los Angeles? I did. I did. Yeah. So I moved you back to, when you to the there? East Coast this past year, but I did like living there. So I lived. Uh, I lived downtown for several years, and then I lived in uh, Echo Park for the okay. last couple years. Hipster um, so, city. Well, yeah. I guess for me, it was. I just lived there because it was very close to the ballpark. Yeah, you know, like I had a five minute commute to Dodger Stadium, which like was, you know, if you can cut down the commute in Los Angeles, you know, you're really winning. Basically. Right, right. Uh, um, did, did you have any sort of special way into that place as media or did you have to get in the long line with everyone? Well, you got there early. So you yeah, you get it, there. Right? You get there early. And yeah, there's like a side sort of you get directed off the path. But, you, you know, if you yeah, it can be trying to get in there, you know, at like noon for a 1 p.m. game on Saturday can be pretty hellish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I liked Los Angeles. You know, I, I, I the thing I would always say is it's um it's kind of a terrible city to visit for like a weekend, but to live it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, I guess like live in the sense that like there's lots of stuff to do in terms of like you know trying to buy a home, not great. Um, but it, you know, in terms of like having a rich uh you know cultural life with good mm-hmm. restaurants and great music and art and all sorts of cool stuff it's right great. i mean the, the problem though is like people are like hey we're gonna come out and visit you in la and i'm like oh cool where are you gonna stay they're like oh we're gonna stay in venice and i'm like well that's a separate city that's you know, an hour <laughs> right. away so that'd be like me going to visit you in new york and saying well i'm staying in teaneck new jersey right um you know it's just not it's not the same so i think people just they 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 uh, underestimate how hard it is to get from place to place in Los yeah. Angeles. And so you can kind of piss away a weekend in traffic uh, and end up not liking it. Yeah. I was remembering uh, with, with James Caprillion up with the A's. Mm-hmm. Um, I was remembering my, my great one day lesson in driving in Southern California. I was down there for like five days in scouting. I had stuff to see every day. I, I think I went to eight games in five days, right? It was very busy. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was, this was my all-time achievement. I, I, I woke up in Orange County because um, I was seeing Chris Betts, who ultimately the Rays took, 
uh, playing high school baseball. So I woke up on a Friday morning in Orange County, got in my car, and drove to Santa Barbara. Okay. Oh, man. Yeah. Long drive um, to see Dylan Tate. Okay. At UC Santa Barbara. And that was a day game on a Friday, right? Mm -hmm. And then he was done after six innings, and I left because I was trying to get to UCLA by 7 p.m. to see James Caprillion. No way. And I missed the first inning or two, but I, I did get there. Wow. So I drove in one day from Orange County to Santa Barbara to UCLA and then back to my <laughs> hotel in Orange County. Yeah. And it was all, it's really just like a 45 mile drive, but it takes several hours. It was quite uh, No, something. it's more than that. Yeah. No, I, I, I learned a lot that day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, and they, obviously I lived in Chicago for 20 years. I know what traffic is. Um, but yeah. still, that's it's 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 a different beast there. It's not even it's not so much the concept of traffic. It's just this. It's just like this thing that on the map is right there. Mm-hmm. Getting right there, it just takes forever. And then you want to go to the other place that is right there. Well, that takes another forever. And you just it just can be wearying. And especially if you're only there for like three or four days, you just come away like fucking hating the place but if you right. live there and you have a sense of the rhythms of it a little bit it's wonderful it's, it's yeah, a great, I, great great city i also say another quick memory from 2017 the best way to get to dodger stadium is with a police escort <laughs> fantastic yeah um so annie what have you been up to uh you know i'm just uh working on some some projects to, for the athletic.com um you know i'm vaccinated and so being able to see friends and family has been great you know i was talking to uh to jesse sanchez uh from mlb.com a good jesse's friend of the mine. best yeah yeah he'll, he'll, he'll be on the show at some point i think we'll do some international stuff with him he's a you know and, phenomenal uh, he, dude he and I were talking, uh, you know, a few weeks ago and I asked him how he was doing and, you know, everyone I think has been, uh, you know, kind of struggling with mental health stuff and in the past year, it hasn't been very easy. And so, you know, I asked him, you know, how things were going and he was telling me that he, uh, he got a, a membership to a car wash and now, uh, every week, you know, he goes and, uh, and he gets his car washed, you know, and it's like become a ritual for him. And he said, he said, Andrew, you know, my mind is clear and my car is clean and it's all because of my car wash membership and uh, i've been thinking about that for like the last two weeks and i think you know if i can impart anything on on the listeners it's you know as at the times like you know you got to find what your car wash membership is do you right own now. a car no 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 i know but uh but but uh you know, you got to get, you got to find your car wash membership. It doesn't have to be a car wash membership, but just yeah. something, something that gives you that, uh, you know, that, 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 that sense of purpose and sense of, uh, you know, uh, centering. And so I've been, you know, I've been looking for that and, uh, yeah, you know, things are, things are good, man. How have, are you you found, have you, have you found anything? Well, what, I, is your, I, what is your car wash <laughs> membership? I'm trying to I think got, what my car wash <laughs> membership is, and yeah, I don't know exactly. what it is. Everyone needs to find it. So I got back in the gym a couple weeks ago. I finally, you know, was able to, uh, you know, to, to start uh, working out again. I guess I could have been working out, but, like, I'm pretty – like, yeah, I'm pretty easily uh, unmotivated, I guess. And so I, you know, you won't believe this, but like I probably ate too much during the pandemic. <laughs> uh, so it has been nice to, you know, be in be in the gym, you know, clanging and banging at 7 a.m., uh, you know, oh, it's way too early, three days a week and then doing some cardio. And so that's my car wash membership is a gym membership. But, uh, you know, it's just a metaphor. It's just, you know, you got to find you, that thing. Do you are, do you? Are you working out like solo or are you going to like 
I don't know if, the, if this is the right terminology. Are you going to like classes with people and stuff like that? No, I just, no. I, you just I do just, your own thing, right? Yeah, I just do my own thing, yeah. So if you have MLB TV um, and you're watching it, there, there's an ad. And I think that I think I've seen this out on MLB Network as well. So I think people are going to know what I'm talking about. There's this ad for Peloton. Okay. And it shows the people getting ready to do their Peloton stuff. And then obviously with Peloton, you have like the membership and you can like, there's a person on the screen helping you. Like you're in a thing, right? You're at mm-hmm. an event and the person, there's a Peloton person. And I see these people and they're like, okay, Peloton people, let's go. We're going to crush this. Right. Mm-hmm. And I see all these people and I, and I, I, I feel bad for saying this, but I'm like, I hate these people. <laughs> I, want, I want nothing to do with these people. I want, I don't want to be in the same room with these people. I don't want them on the, my iPad screen. I don't want these people like, I know it hurts. Fight through Peloton people. I'm like, I don't like you. I don't know. I don't, I want nothing to do with you. I'm rejecting you. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see that. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, like rich enough to own a Peloton, I guess. Uh, so maybe there's some class-based stuff there. Only but, $49 uh, a month with no financing. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, I don't know. I've never like, I just kind of look at it as like, I want to be able to go to the gym and like not have someone yell at me. Right. Um, you know, which like, again, like this is, it's, it's more for like mental health almost than it is for like whether or not I'm actually like squatting more this week than I was last week. It's more just like, so I can produce some endorphins. So I feel good about myself. And so like, I like to, you know, have the option of just like, all right, I did enough today. I'm going to leave now, you know, like five minutes shorter than normal. Um, you know, but that's just really like, I, as I said, I'm a very unmotivated, lazy person. And so this works for me. Yeah, I, I'm I'm happy to say that like my my pandemic weight gain is like four pounds. Well, congrats! That's uh, I'm like know, good one, for you. I'm like one night. I lost like three or four years ago. I lost forty five pounds, and now I can just say I've lost forty. <laughs> well, that's that's great. Yeah, two thirty five down to one ninety five. Yeah. Um. So, as, as kind of a national writer, you're like you're not a beat guy anymore. You're not doing the beat grind if you will and i think the the athletic has helped kind of um redefine in a really good way what it means to be a beat writer um as opposed to just writing a gamer every night but nonetheless like you don't have a specific team you're not sitting there saying hey i'm on the diamondbacks what's the story today oh they they did this and this player's playing well maybe there's a story there you know that kind like you are more you have to think broadly it's more of a it's more of a thirty thousand foot view um like how do you make these decisions like this is what i want to write about and and kind of i always ask people this because i it's something i struggle with like what's your percentage of going from this is what i want to write about to it actually being a piece because i i fall into a couple things which is i kind of want to write about write about what's going on with this player and then i look at it and i go yeah it's kind of simple and, and it's 400 words and that's not a piece um Mm. you know or and i think like that and so not everything turns into something like how do you decide this is what i want to write about when you have almost this this too broad almost it's it's this wonderful freeing thing but also kind of wonderfully uh smothering thing about like i i have all of this in front of me i'm i am a national feature i'm a national writer and senior writer i can do it i can just i have the whole world of baseball Like, how do you make those decisions um, and, and kind of what's your percentage hit rate of, of something going from, I want to write about this to it actually entering and becoming a thing? Have I mentioned the importance of finding a car wash membership? <laughs> um, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, 
it's a you know it's a gilded cage right like I can write about whatever I want and that is uh, both freeing and also very um, paralyzing in some ways I mean because I think like when you're on the beat um, your job is very very challenging but it's also very straightforward you know what's the most important thing that happened with the baseball team today what is the thing that the readers want to know and need to know about the baseball team today mm -hmm. and um, you know that can be stifling but it also can be um, it also just can be nice to wake up and know, you know, right. what responsibilities are. Like I, I write, a, to, I write yeah. about the Tigers. Spencer Turnbull threw a no hitter. I'm writing about the no hitter. Yep, yep. And so, you know, it's my right in front challenge of you. is, yeah, my challenge is like, what are you, um, you know, interested in? What, what, you know, what is worth your time? And like, you know, to be honest, like I don't find the trends in the sport to be that interesting. I, I really like writing about people um, mm -hmm. you know and i like trying to find you know players and people in the game who are in an interesting sort of moment um and trying to you know like explain kind of what it's like to be that person in that situation i guess which isn't you know uh the easiest thing to pull off and it's been uh, i'd say my hit rate is like way lower in this current era um because it's, you just access is just so limited you know right um like like you know for example like a couple years ago you know in 2019 i did like a big story on garrett cole and like how i did that was i went up and stood in front of garrett cole and said hey i want to do this like when can, when do you have time to talk and he was like you know, here's when I have time to talk and we'll do it. So, okay, great. You know, like this year I wanted to do something on Carlos Correa and, you know, it's just not available. You know, you call the representatives and try and explain what you want to do and they're just like, yeah, he's not interested. It's like, okay, you know, okay, cool. Um, and there's a lot more of, yeah, he's not interested. I think when you're going through layers of people who are there to specifically, you know, protect the athletes or whatever you know and uh, right that just ma and that just makes it a lot more uh challenging i guess you know so I'm, i mean in this yeah. in this pandemic world and everything over zoom it feels like and you're not the first to say it, like the one-on-one -on -one is dead it's not yeah it's not even so much that it's just like i don't think clayton kershaw has ever in his life wanted to talk to me I would say, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think he's ever woke up and said like, man, you know what would be great is if I called Andy McCullough today. Mm -hmm. But when you're standing in front of him, he feels an obligation to speak to you, you know, and like understands that part of his responsibility of being, you know, the ace of the Los Angeles Dodgers is that he has to, you know, talk to the media from time to time. And he's very mm -hmm. professional about that. But now that people, and this doesn't actually even apply to Kershaw, you know, because he like went, you know, he called me back for a story that I was working on about him a couple months ago. But just like in general, um, you know, you don't have the ability to stand in front of these people and basically, you know, like just get them to talk to you. And so it's really just at their discretion of whether or not, they want to do it and there you know there's no real like accountability there like i'm working on like a big feature on a player right now who i think is really interesting and i think is you know the story is um you know it's not like uh it's not like a hit piece you know but he doesn't want to talk to me for it so i'm just mm -hmm. doing it without him and um you know that's like a that's a challenge that's a little bit different than 
what I had been accustomed to when you're normally, you just have access to people, I guess. Right. Um, I, I had someone, a beat writer talk to me, I was talking to recently and he kind of complained about the zoom stuff in the sense that they're like, there's these group settings. And if he, if he asks player X a question, he's kind of shown his poker hand. Like you mm-hmm. now, you now know what he's writing about. And like, there's no more, you now if I ask you this specific question, it's going to be very clear. This is what I'm writing about. And, and that, uh, that annoys him. Then he also thought, and I, you know, and I, he didn't say this in an arrogant way. Like I'm showing other people how to, how I do my job, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I'm training other, and, and, and I, you know, how has the kind of, pandemic world affected you in that way and do you think i think teams want to do this as long as possible and i think the majority of players are fine with it i don't know i think players kind of hate it okay yeah but i i think i think players don't like going on zoom i think they think it's awkward i think they Mm -hmm. don't like kind of staring at a screen i think they don't like the fact that if they say something it's going to be almost instantly a video of it is going to go up like on twitter before the thing even ends right Um, right i I think they don't like the lack of sort of like face-to-face interaction not that they love talking to us but i think they just find it annoying you know Um, So I I actually don't harbor a lot of concerns about getting access back, Um, but I do Do think think, that... Do you think you'll get it back this year? Yeah, I mean, we're already getting it back in some degrees. I mean, some teams are offering one-on-ones now, and, you know, the folks at the BBWAA uh, are pushing, you know, very hard to get us back, um, you know, field access, you know, during Mm -hmm. batting practice, which I think will be very helpful because right now, even with one-on-ones, you know, you got to tell the team like, hey, I'd like to speak to so-and-so. And And they'll be like, okay, what would you like to speak to so-and-so about? And you can't just write back baseball, you know? Um, Yeah, you know, it's so it's (laughs) it's frustrating. Uh, It's frustrating. I I think we're going to get access back though, because I don't think anyone likes the Zooms. Like the PR guys don't like it because they're annoying. When there's technical glitches, they get yelled at by their bosses. Um, you got to do a lot more wrangling. Like I think they, I think it's uh, you know it's a headache that they don't enjoy. Right, uh, Andy. I want to I want to thank you for coming on and co-hosting with me. Um, if thank you, you wanna... for having me. This oh no, fun. it's just that's a thrill for me. This I, was great. Big fan. Uh, <laughs> if you want to read Andy's stuff, you go over to the Athletic. If you want to follow him on Twitter, you go to by McCullough. I see a lot of writers with this by my name. Yeah. Thing. Well, someone already has like at Andy McCullough and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've, uh, I've gone through so many iterations where I had like my last name and the company I was working at where I was like, well, you know, yeah. what am I going to do? But five years from now, I'm going to have to change this again. Right. So, <laughs> so you might as well just get one you can keep for a while. Yep. Yeah. So if you want to follow Andy on Twitter by McCullough, you want to follow me, Kevin underscore Goldstein, no company name attached. Uh, And thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week.